Leonard was praying for something that I had been reflecting on um, during this time, uh, that uh, yesterday I was, you know, happened to be uh, driving home and James listened to some Christmas, uh, Christmas song, and so I decided to, to just start listening to, like, random contemporary Christ, uh, Christmas songs and um, I was listening to one, and it, it, it's sort of a sentimental, it was, it was religious but sentimental in the sense that it kind of has this idea of, in general, we're happy, but we could make things better, so to speak, and that Jesus is coming to kind of bring uh, more joy into this, or that um, a sense that what we need is love, and maybe God is going to bring a little bit more love in the world, uh, we certainly need love, and we need more love in the world, but I think uh, one of the things that Leonard was pointing out is that I used to kind of, I think maybe all of us used to think, well, there's always people that have things that have happened, and so it makes, um, it makes this time of year uh, difficult because there's sorrow, but then when you start unpacking and you start reflecting on and you see it in the scriptures, you realize that Jesus came because it's a world of darkness. It's a world full of sorrow, world, world full of grief. And we often don't think about um, the fact that, you know, uh, that that's what Christ came into uh, was to deliver from gloom, to deliver from sorrow. And that that's the, that's the, um, uh, the sorrow that we're experiencing is man's, really his estate, his fallen estate, his, his estate of sin and misery. And without it, it would be a really, it would be a really, not only a sad overall um, season to think about in terms of if we're going to reflect upon the incarnation, and, and there's no reason why we shouldn't be thinking about the incarnation year-round, because that's the only basis by which we, we stand or fall in this life um, in Christ, is the fact that he is the incarnate, that God came, that the Son of God became man for us. And so it's not a once-a-year time, but it is a time in which we can at least uh, focus on it with, a, with laser precision and think about what it means to us. And so as we open up Isaiah together and continue through a few prophecies, let's see what, where, what Christ came for and be reminded even in Isaiah's day what that means for us today. So if you would stand for the reading of God's Word, I'm just going to read verses 6 to 7 of... Um, chapter 9 in Isaiah to get us started. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David, and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Please be seated. In order to kind of set the scene here, I think that, um, you know, uh, I think I'm through, let's see if I could do a little bit of quick math here. I think I'm through probably the 23rd or the 24th time I've been through the entire scriptures. 
um, read, listening to them now because I can't really read them very well, but I listen to them, and it's actually really easy to do. Encourage you in the new year, go to the uh, Version Bible app, download it, download a Bible reading plan, and then every morning you go in there, and it'll read to you. You could be brushing your teeth listening to the Word of God. You can be doing lots of things that don't require any hands, or any. you can just be listening to the Word of God and get through the Word of God once a year listening to the Word of God, and so I encourage you. But the point I'm making on this is that I've listened to Isaiah a number of times, and, so, and I think with prophecy sometimes you, you lose track of the fact that in the middle of prophecies, he's in the middle of things happening. Like it's, it's sometimes hard to pair up kings and chronicles and all those other kinds of things as to what the history is going on. And you don't really think about, well, why is Isaiah saying this both now and into the future and what's going on politically, economically, and things like that? Because we tend to almost treat these these um, Bible characters as almost Sims or, or, or NPCs if you're into video games or something. They're just walking around. They're not really living lives like us. They're just characters in the scriptures. They don't really have any real lives. They're not going through the same things we would go. I mean, come on, this is, this is the scripture or something like that. But the reality is they're living lives, of course, much more impoverished, much less in terms of the things that we have, conveniences and things like that. But they're living as people navigating a world world. And so what's going on at the time that Isaiah is writing this? So let's back up a little bit into Isaiah chapter 8, verses 11, 22. And don't worry about the time. We have all the time in the world. So no, I'm just, I'm kidding. We're not going to, I always say I'm not going to go long. And then I look at the clock and I'm like, wow, I preached for longer than I wanted to. But um, Isaiah chapter 8, verses 11 to 22 says, for the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me, and, and warned me not to walk in the way of the people, saying, Do not call conspiracy all this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they, what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him, you shall hold, him shall you honor as holy. Let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be ashamed and taken. Bind up the testimony, seal the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is holding who was hiding his face from the house of Jacob and with hope in him. Behold, I and the children in whom the Lord has given me are are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. And when they say to you, inquire of, of, of mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mute, who church, I'm sorry, who chirp, and, um, and, and mute, should not people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? To the teaching and to the testimony, to the teaching and to the testimony, if they will not speak according to the word, it is because they have, they have no dawn. 
they will pass through the land greatly distressed and and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak, um, they will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. So what's going on here? Um, Basically, what the Lord is teaching Isaiah is he's saying, hey, things are really bad, and what you need to do is you don't need to be like the world around you, okay? I know this sounds like, this is wild. I mean, it almost sounds like something that's in the New Testament. I mean, like, wow, God's consistent. That's weird. Like, this sounds almost like what Paul's talking about, rocks of offense, stone of stumbling. I wonder where they, I wonder where they got these ideas from. It's from, it's from places like this in the scriptures, and the, and the tendency is for the people of God to almost think they're the first ones to go through this. Isaiah is navigating a time in which Ahaz has decided he's going to side with Assyria. Like they're they're the power brokers in the land. They're really powerful. He's going to side with them against Judah and, um, uh, I'm sorry, not against Judah, but against the northern kingdom and Syria as a politically expedient thing. And now things aren't going very well. In fact, what's happened is that um, portions of the northern kingdom are already starting to be sacked. They're already starting to kind of be chipped away. So things aren't going very well. Um, And Ahaz is looking up at that. And then there are people around. um, This is shocking. Like, can you imagine this? That there's kind of political intrigue as to why things are the way they are. And maybe politicians aren't exactly being truthful about like, well, I made this decision. They might have actually said that they didn't really do that. Maybe there's another reason for that. And there's conspiracy theories going around. Believe it or not, people in the past used to engage in conspiracy theories. Now that we're modern and we're really advanced in time, we, we, you have to read it in the history books because people don't engage in these kinds of things. And even if they do, what's really great is Christians never engage in that kind of stuff. They never get caught up into the things that are going on in the world and that sort of thing. And they, th- they, they never think in really short-term ways, the way that things are happening and saying, oh my gosh, if this doesn't turn out well in the next three years, then we're doomed and that sort of thing. I'm just letting you know the way sometimes people were tempted in the past because we don't struggle with those today. So I know this sounds really foreign to you, like something that you never experienced, but I'm trying to give you an insight into the way people thought in the past because they were really superstitious and turned into all these ideas about how they could turn things around, you see. And so um, what they were, what, what God is telling him is, hey, I want you to stop thinking about like the, the near term here. I want you to stop worrying about the way things are, and even people blaming you for the thing that you warned them against. Like imagine that Isaiah is saying, hey, don't go in this direction. They go in the wrong direction. And then somehow the people of God are the ones that are, are the ones that are, are faithful, are the ones that are blamed from the turmoil because probably they're the ones saying, hey, turn to God. And, and they're saying, no, we, we need to come up with another short, short-term fix for this. And what God is saying, don't let these conspiracies be your fear. Don't let the things that are like in the near term be your constant consumption. Don't consume your entire um, 
your entire future in terms of your outlook on the things that are before you. I want you, you know what you need to be in fear of? Uh, believer, Isaiah, Christian, fear the Lord. If you want to have somebody to be in fear of, fear him. Let him be your dread. Let his holiness be your, cons- your consuming idea. The thing that you think about that God is holy and that everything is going to work out according to his plan and even the things that are short-term. And these aren't like minor short-term things. We're talking about um, entire regions being lost into um, other believers. So now, what is he telling them? Uh, what, what, what's going on? religiously with the people of God? Are they turning again and saying, uh, Lord, what, what's going on? I, I, we, 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 we're, we're losing our land. Let's turn back. Let's repent. Let's turn to God. No, Isaiah is witnessing and he's testifying to the fact that like, hey, I know uh, mediums and necromancers, those, 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 those folks seem to work out well for the other land. So let's turn to them. Let's ask what's going to happen with them. We'll, we'll ask them their opinions on those sorts of things. And actually, Isaiah is sort of making fun of their the way they talk, because it's actually um, uh, in, in the history books or, or the, in the things that they've uncovered archaeologically that it sounded like they were chirping when they were prophesying or doing weird things. And again, believe it or not, people in the past did this. We never see this again in terms of people turning to somebody outside of God for answers, all sorts of things like, I don't know, the psychic network and that sort of thing. That only existed in the past, but they were trusting in all these strange ideas, and God is trying to say, no, this is the exact thing that brings them into bondage. And in fact, what ends up happening is that, and, and Paul almost, Paul alludes to this in, in, in Romans chapter 2, when he talks about the fact that there's almost this pride in the Jews that they are supposed to be, a, that they're a light to the Gentiles. Like, we're a light to the Gentiles. And Paul in Romans chapter 2 says, you Jews pretend as if you're a light to the Gentiles, but you're walking around in darkness. And, and, and if you, you could say he's alluding to the pattern of Israel here, because the people of God were intended to be a light to the people, but they had fallen into the very things that they were intended to forsake. And so there's this just cloud of darkness, this bondage to sin and death that keeps... Um, redoubling itself and that everything around is like this closing curtain of darkness as the people of God keep turning further and further away from God, relying upon themselves, trusting in their own, uh, in their own strength. And in, in a real sense, it's a very tragic and very sad thing because the people who have all this light and, and things in this life are very hard very difficult as they are. And and remember, these are real flesh and blood people. And so parents are not training their children to call upon the name of the Lord. They're losing them uh, to all sorts of things. They're, they're, they're seeing their, the children are seeing their parents die. Children are, are, are watching their city sacked, all sorts of horrible things of war, poverty, um, starvation, uh, the, the loss of, of their regions and everything else. And they don't even have, they don't even understand how to turn to God anymore because they've lost it. The Northern Kingdom completely loses the plot with respect to trust in God. And it's just, just a terrible point at which this, this nation has the light 
And from Jeroboam on in the northern kingdom, they turn to idolatry. And then you see just this closing of the curtain where an entire people just seem lost. That's why we call them the 10 lost tribes of Israel. That's why we call them the Jews to this day is because the tribe of Judah was pretty much, except for a few exceptions, were the only ones that survived this period. And so thick clouds, thick darkness in this entire region. And it seems like, it seems like there's just doom. But that's not the... Um, that's not the final story. Uh, R.C. Sproul used to say that uh, he, he liked the buts of God. B-U-T, the, the accept, the, 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 the everything is going to be darkness and gloom, and then God says, but I will. And this next portion that we're reading here, uh, it's in the future tense, if you think kids, future tense verbs, parents know all this, so you guys can tune out. Parents, you guys understand all this stuff, right? But the future tense means the Lord will do this stuff, but the actual way that this is communicated is the prophetic perfect. And what that means is Isaiah's writing this as if it's already happened, as if he's, he's right now standing in the future and like through some sort of quantum tunnel telling like, hey, this is what's happening. And Isaiah's on the other side saying, whoa, that's awesome. This is exactly what's happening. So what, what I'm trying to say is that Isaiah's writing in a way from here on as if everything's already occurred. And so let's, let's hear what Isaiah prophesies. He says, but there will be no gloom for, who, for her who was in anguish in the former time. He brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the later time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the, the, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when, the divide, when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. So what Isaiah sees and is able to testify with, with certainty as if it's happened is that the, the day of gloom has ended and the Lord is going to bring it about. He's going to bring about a vindication and a um and the fact that even these lost lands of Naphtali and Zebulun which are in the the northern part the first ones that are kind of coming under the darkness as Assyria enfolds them and these people are wiped out and they're no more there's a prophecy that Galilee of the Gentiles as it's called is going to see a great light that there's going to be there's going to be joy 
where there was only sorrow. And there's going to be light where there was only darkness. And he's going to multiply his people in the midst of something that seems inconceivably impossible. That God would bring life out of darkness, light out of darkness, life where there's death, and joy where there's gloom. He's going to increase their joy and they're going to rejoice before you as at the harvest. And they're going to, all, the, all, of, the, all of the bloodstained garments, all the things that, that mankind will do in that region, all the, all the sin and sorrow will basically be burned up and the oppressors and the oppression will cease. And obviously we have to have, you have to have a, 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 a sense of, of time, you have to have a sense of expectation, you have to have a sense of patience to see these things unfurl as you're an Old Testament believer looking at what or reading what Isaiah is, is prophesying to you, believing upon something that, that hasn't happened, passing it on to your children, saying the Lord has accomplished this, and saying, son, Daughter, the Lord has accomplished this. And as they get older, they tell their children and their children's children and their children's children's children. And this continued expectation in the midst of sorrow, in the midst of gloom, that the Lord is going to bring these things about. I was, I don't know why why it occurred to me, but I was just thinking about like generations of 700 years of people believing people that had been brought out of brought out of that land brought back as the believing Jews or even Samaritans who weren't expecting it and then to to have Jesus walk across a plain someday and see the the fulfillment of that is just so amazing to think that God has accomplished something and that people are living in gloom and darkness and Christ accomplishes what Isaiah has prophesied and for the, the patient expectation of believers to, to have a timeline of God to believe what Isaiah says and say, don't worry about the conspiracies around you. Don't worry about things happen. Let the, the, the fear of the Lord be your dread. And for that time, for that to continue on as people are young and grow old and see sorrow, but to continue to have that expectation that Christ is going to bring that about, pass it on to their children. And then for, for somebody's child to be the, the receptor of that joy, it's just an incredible thing to see the Lord bring it out, to bring it about. And, and what kind of God is this? What kind of person is this? And again, you know, again, reading this, you sometimes can kind of forget that all of these things are connected, that Isaiah has already early on talked to Ahaz about a son that will be born of a virgin. And we talked about how impossible, how inconceivable that was last week that a child would be born to a virgin. But then he returns to this child again, and he tells us more about this child. And I put down that he has four names here. He actually has more than that. In fact, I was thinking about that today. Uh, I was thinking about like, like, you know, sometimes people will say, well, Joseph was 
was prophesied that his name shall be Emmanuel, and then Joseph called him Jesus. And you're thinking, were you paying attention, Joseph? He said his name was going to be Emmanuel. And maybe, you know, like we're thinking, well, you know, maybe Joseph's flipping a few channels, got it. And he's like, you know, he's not really paying attention. And, and then he's like, hey, we're going to name him Jesus. But then we know that he was supposed to be named Emmanuel. But the reality is, is that Christ has so many names in the Old Testament. And, and all we're doing is, is this unfurling of this incredible person that's coming that um, he's called the Son of Man and Daniel and all these things. In fact, there was this one, there was this one uh, uh, New Testament scholar who went to this conference and he just started reading out the names attributed to Christ and spent 30 minutes in just this glorious... Um, glorious recounting of all the names of our Savior. But in this, Isaiah is unfurling again for us four names that mean something to us today in terms of as we contemplate what is being prophesied here. He says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. Of the throne of, on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The Lord will come, that the Son who is coming and who has come you know, what's amazing here is that it talks about the government being upon his shoulder. It means that all of the burden of, of government will initially be borne by him. But think about this in terms of the scriptures, in terms of what's first talked about that's placed on his shoulder is the, is the beam of his crucifixion for our sin. Because in order for Christ to have a people to govern in righteousness and in peace, he's first going to have to accomplish for his people that which is the source of our gloom and grief. And he's going to have to bear, and he did bear, the sin and sorrow, the estate of sin and misery for us, everything bound up in the sin of Adam and all the people that were associated with him, everything concentrated in, in, in sin and evil, Christ bears upon his shoulder and only if he's God could he bear and, and give dig such dignity to this sacrifice. And only if he's truly man could he actually uh, stand in our place for this. And he bore that upon his, his shoulder. He bore all the grief, all the sorrow, all the gloom upon him, all the concentrated, all the tears of parents weeping for their children, all of the, the cries of saints over, over, over time against their enemies, against God's enemies, and, and in fact bringing in God's enemies and the sons and daughters of God's enemy and paying for their sins, all born on his shoulder. And his government will have no end. <clears throat> and, his, and, and he has these four names here. Wonderful Counselor, and I know... Um, Every time I hear this, I'm thinking of um, the Handel's Messiah. I don't know if you guys can come to this passage without 
thinking of Handel's Messiah. Uh, but, you know, this is, this is a translation choice here uh, because there's no commas in the original text, but I think a lot of people agree that, that Wonderful and Counselor are describing it's not Wonderful, comma, Counselor, it's the kind of counselor he is. He provides perfect, wonderful, awe-inspiring counsel. He does not, he's in need of nobody to counsel him, but it's, he's, he's this counselor that can provide peace and comfort for all of your needs. And that doesn't mean that he doesn't, that he doesn't use one, uh, one, us to do that. In fact, what Christ does is he, as the counselor and uh, the perfect prof, prophet, priest, and king, he ministers to us through others and gifts them through them. But Christ himself is the counselor with a capital C. He's the mighty God. In fact, this is one of those this is one of those places where all of these things attributed to Christ are so intense that um, early Jewish scholars were like anticipating, wow, whoever this is talking about, I guess he's mighty God. Later Jewish scholars were like, you know what, I, that can't be talking about a person, so we're going to try and figure out a way around this. But God, Christ is the mighty God. He's the everlasting father, and we're thinking like for those of us, if we put on our theology hats for a second and we think like, well, wait a second, is Christ both the father and the son? Are we talking about the Trinity? No, what we're talking about here is the father in the way that the, the, um, uh, the scriptures often use rulers and those who watch over us as being fathers and caretakers for us, pe- people who provide good for their children, people who are the source of He's the source of our salvation. He's everlasting in that. And so this goodness that Christ provides to us. And then he's also the Prince of Peace. He's the one that brings the end of enmity, the end of strife between God and man. And because he's able to do that, it ultimately solves the problem that man has with man. Because until the until the problem between God and man is solved, then mankind cannot have any peace with themselves. And so he is the Prince of Peace. Uh, Prince of Peace, And of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. In the throne of David, which is prophesied to that Christ will be the great, da- the great son of David, the one who is the Messiah, the one who is the son of God, he, he will establish it and establish it forevermore. And then I love the end where it says, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. You know, I, I think sometimes we, we conceive of God as sort of um, kind of uh, setting things in motion and saying, well, here you go. I've given you all the steps. And then I'm going to wait to see how it all turns out. Like, you know, do this, 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 and this. And then I'm going to kind of be like, at the end, I'm going to be like, hey, looks like a bunch of people followed the plan, so to speak. You know, in fact, there's, there's even versions of Christianity that I think that are, are, um, are really impoverishing to the saints to think that what God has done is saying, here's, here's the way you should go. I've given you a little help. Now cooperate with it. And then God's sitting there going, good, you, good, you, you, you did what I said. Even, even the idea of like, hey, um, contribute your faith, contribute your, your, uh, your, 
energy. I know that I've made it easier because at least I'm rewarding you for more than I need, but ultimately it's up to you. But in reality, what we see here is haven't we just heard a people who are in darkness, a people who are in gloom, a people who need deliverance? And we need a God with zeal. We all need a God with zeal who are going to deliver us. If this is going to happen, that God's going to have to be zealous. He's going to have to be so jealous, so concerned for his people that he's going to do anything he can to bring it about. He's not going to leave it to chance. And I know Peter, Peter even has to remind us is that, that, that don't, don't mistake God taking a while for the fact that he doesn't care. That the timing of God may not meet our expectations, but because it's happening more slowly does not mean that there's a lack of intensity on God's part to bring the thing about. He has zeal. In fact, one of the things that I love about the Psalms sometimes is it pictures pictures God in ways that we can be tangible. And I don't know why I particularly like one, but sometimes there's almost like a picture of God. You're thinking, well, I'm glad inspired this. God inspired this because I'd never say it about him, but it's sort of like, well, God's kind of like this, this drunken soldier woken up and he's like, I'm going to mess with whoever did. And he's like so zealous for, for that, that sometimes he's, he's compared to somebody who's going to take care of things. And sometimes you need somebody who's going to open up a can of whoop stuff on God's enemies and make sure that everything happens because we're like saying, God, we need your help. Things around us are darkness and gloom. And even when Christ, in, in, in one of Christ's um, uh, own, own parables, talks about like, hey, when you're, when you're captured by a strong man, you need somebody stronger than, than the strong man to release you. And you're thinking, man, I'm glad God's zealous for me because I need, I need that kind of God on my side. I need the kind of God that's going to bring this about, that's going to deliver me from darkness and gloom that's going to deliver the world around us from darkness and gloom and all the things that we see around us, the things that we, we see happening to say, did you hear about that on Facebook? And then we start to like, hey, and then passing around, go, oh, the world's going bad. I remember when I was a kid and we could walk around and, and like ride our bikes around in safety all the time. I didn't even have to have my parents take me to practice in soccer. I could do that all myself. And sometimes they didn't show up and we only got trophies if we won and, and all that. And that's, by the way, that's all true. But the point is, is that that's, that's all like short term, right? I, I, we, we need to start thinking about the fact that there is real darkness and gloom and it's, it's not going to be solved by us agreeing upon all the, the conspiracy theories that are going on. It's, it's not going, going to be solved by us having a short term view. And as we're, as we're dealing with, with gloom and darkness in our own congregation, in, in the sorrow and the fact that I was thinking about this today because um, it hits me really hard sometimes about how sorrowful things are right now. It hit me really acutely when we were meeting as a joint deacon session the other or session in deacons the other day, just how sad I was about the, what, what's happened recently. But, um, you know, I think it, I think that especially saints who are getting old, they have that endurance to the end because as you get old and things are coming and you feel the shadow of death so acutely, 
um, but it kind of builds up towards that. And there's, there's, there's this sorrow that we all should be experiencing over sin and death and the thing that happens. And then what, what makes it more acute is having to deal, I think, with that sorrow for an extended period of time and for the fact that we're always going to be having to, almost with even more endurance, to, to keep plodding forward and see the Lord's timeline and say, yes, it's going to happen. Yes, I'm going to believe it. Yes, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish it. That what is true of what the Lord has promised in salvation in Christ is, has already happened. It's perfectly been fulfilled, and we need to see with the, the vantage point that it's that it's, it's unfurled before us and we just keep pressing forward to it. Even though the darkness and gloom is among us, it has not overtaken us. It will not overtake us because the light has dawned and all of that gloom and darkness eventually will vanish and we will receive the fullness of that glory in the future because the Lord is so zealous that he cannot stand He cannot bear to spend eternity without each and every one of you whom he has loved with an everlasting love. Let us pray. Our Father, our God, we stand in um, awe of the glory that you possess and stand in gratitude over your condescension and mercy towards us as sinners. I thank you that in the midst of our own gloom and darkness, you continue to testify to us as if we've been transported to the time of Isaiah and said, man, I know exactly what you're going through right now, and I'm glad you kept the faith. And I'm glad you came alongside us to keep us moving forward, pressing towards the same Messiah that we've seen in fullness, that we've seen in his glorious dawning, his glorious incarnation, his ascension, his resurrection and ascension. But yet we wait for the consummation of all things. And so thank you that Isaiah has encouraged us And we look forward to seeing all of our resurrected loved ones. Look forward especially to coming up to Isaiah sometime, giving a fist bump and saying, thank you, Isaiah, for this testimony of the Son of God. Encourage us and keep us moving forward. In Jesus' name, amen.